welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Welcome back, everybody, to The Near Memo with David, Mike, and Greg, where each week we bring you three items or more sometimes that pertain to the world of search, social, and commerce with a kind of local flavor. Um, and as always, there's a ton of stuff to talk about that we draw from headlines and from our newsletter and from more in-depth pieces uh, on the website. Um, and today we're going to be um, talking about a kind of a range of, of disparate things, um, not talking about Netflix, um, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> Uh, but, and CNN yeah. Plus, <laughs> and CNN, yeah, right, and CNN. So that's that's a wacky. Like they gave it a month and they're killing it. You know, that's a kind of a wacky thing. But I guess they had high expectations and they were radically disappointed. But we're going to start off today with Mike talking about um, the extension of Prime shipping and other uh, associated functions to non Amazon merchants so it does require that so it's called buy with prime i caught my eye i think it's really an interesting move by them uh simple javascript onto a merchant website allows that merchant to offer all of the benefits of prime like service it actually is you know fast shipping from amazon warehouses free shipping all the things that amazon is known for obviously easy returns and all the other stuff and it was just a fascinating push from Amazon of both their logistics, their payment, their brand, their customer relations reputation out to the rest of the e-commerce world. And in the article, I just thought it fascinating that uh, they noted specifically that uh, retailers will receive shopper order information and email addresses for customer orders, both sort of as if that's a benefit. I mean, obviously they have those things now. I think the flip side of that is that Amazon is now going to be seeing the email address and customer information for orders they weren't previously seeing. So there's certainly a double-edged sword there. The article pointed out that this positions them, uh, this positions them very forcefully vis-a-vis -vis Shopify, who has been attempting to, to create a delivery network, not particularly successfully. And from what you said and what I've seen, they are and Shopify's trying to buy this company called Deliver to offer some sort of logistics to it's their two day, clients. Two day shipping. Two day company. shipping. And it's just a fascinating move given given how uh, it's very ostentatious in some ways. It should, certainly is one that will raise the eyebrows of, of antitrust regulators uh, because it pushes Amazon further into the e-commerce ecosystem and also the local ecosystem. I I wonder how much, I, I wonder what type of retailers would agree to do it and then the, how much it's going to impact Shopify. But also it's interesting to me because it really impacts to me, in my mind, UPS and FedEx because it it intervenes into the order process in a way that excludes them from ever possibly delivering orders that they're currently delivering. So I think the big impact is also going to be there. So I'm just curious, like what retailer would agree to do this? Why? And then what's going to happen to Shopify in this? And yeah, there are a lot what of, what does it mean for UPS? A lot of fascinating dimensions to this. I mean, um, 
I read a statistic that said 60% of the sales on Amazon now are from third-party sellers. And this, in one sense, is an extension of that outreach to third parties. You know, they're moving from Amazon sort of only inventory to what we have today, which is the marketplace. And then they're extending that reach into the entirety of the e-commerce web hypothetically I, my, my it's very capital non-intensive right. for amazon right, right. and and very margin well except except for the logistics piece of it i don't know what the cost implications are there but i mean if, if it's wildly successful then they've got more trucks and more people running around delivering stuff on behalf of of uh, of others i i would guess that major retailers are not going to bite at this because they want to have more control um, I was talking to somebody from Sephora the other day about real-time inventory on Google, and she was telling me, uh, this was all just very informal, she was telling me, uh, no, we don't participate in that. We're not, we're not involved in that because there's, I think, an inherent suspicion of these big platforms by major retailers, especially around data. Who owns the data? What kind of data are they seeing? Can they use it to compete against me? Um, smaller retailers, the ones that don't have the capacity to to meet consumer demands for two-day shipping are the ones I think that are likely to do this or medium, you know, sort of medium and small, maybe not the true mom and pops, but medium and small. That would be my answer. I, I would agree. Like a huge pound of flesh. Though. It's not going to yeah, be Yeah, but, but if you're sort of, you know, a nascent, if you're a nascent e-commerce brand, I think you're probably more eager to drive growth and anything that would help increase conversion at, during the checkout process would probably be worth the trade-off at a at an earlier stage uh, or smaller stage company. Uh, so, Greg, I agree. I think that's that feels like the most natural uptakers uh, of this offering. Um, the flip side of that is if you are a major brand and you already have a store on Amazon, I mean, I don't I'm not embedded deeply in any major e-commerce client, but, um, you know, I'd be curious to know what percentage of someone like Sephora, I don't know if Sephora has a an Amazon store, either. but like what percentage, what percentage of their sales are already coming through their Amazon, you know, sort of channel. Uh, and if it's already a substantial percentage, I mean, are you really losing that much by, uh, by increasing conversion on the remaining 20 or 30% of your customers? So I don't know. Um, I think it's a really interesting offering. Yeah. I think it, it should raise all kinds of antitrust red flags, but um, smaller merchants are probably more likely to take advantage than larger ones. So Sephora is in fact on Amazon, and I, I think that's okay. a very, I think that's a very good point. If you if you're already invested in Amazon, does this really matter? I mean, I think I think there's data that show consumers have been conditioned now to expect fast shipping. That's one of the number one or number two yeah. things that they want from e-commerce, and a lot of merchants just can't deliver it. There there are a couple of companies at least dedicated to duplicating Prime-like shipping speeds. Uh, in the you know the off Amazon and those guys are yeah I mean I would say fast and free I mean yeah. it's a you know if I have a hundred dollar apparel order from some local merchant and shipping ends up being eighteen dollars like that adds a substantial amount to my overall cart and it makes me you know think twice about ordering an item that really you know theoretically I could get a similar item from Amazon with free shipping so um, so if if the free part is part of this offering, I think it it, it amps up the um, the increase in conversion that you might get from this as an independent brand. Well, so. it's it's according to the article I read, it is part mm -hmm. of part of the offering. So so for but so do you have to be a prime 
uh, do you have to be a prime member as a consumer to get the, get the, uh, to use it? Or is this just available to anybody who's buying on these third party sites? That's a good question. I, oh, I assumed you have to be a prime customer already that, that right. you'd have to OAuth through Amazon to probably tell the merchant. Right. Probably that, so. And I'm eligible for this offer. Pro- yeah. Probably so. In which case that, that becomes a, a, another recruiting tool for more, you know, I mean, Amazon's got like some massive number of us households now in prime, mm-hmm. but it, 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 it it's not a hundred percent. So this extends the reach. They have to, they have to convince you, Greg, to pay the increase in uh, membership dues I, I, this year. I, so. I paid it because I'm lazy and I <laughs> just let my credit it. card get charged. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. But the I, question is, are you going to let your Netflix uh, prescription? Uh, subscription no, go no, off? no. Net, we'll talk about Netflix <laughs> another time and and ads. But, but um, I, it, I I think I think it is an antitrust issue. I mean, although it's it's not manifested, right? It's not like they're buying a big competitor who's now going to take competition out of the market. This is a very different kind of situation. Typically, it does benefit consumers. I mean, you know, right. the free. Free shipping is a huge consumer benefit, right? So. And this is and it's what consumers repeatedly say they want. And so and so this kind of old antitrust lens, which is is it going to increase prices? Is it going to harm consumers? Really doesn't doesn't apply at least in the near term here. Now in the long term, it might if you're diminishing different kinds of options and making everybody totally dependent on Amazon. But well, the, I think it was in the Washington. Uh, attorney DC Attorney General's case, they claimed that the free that Amazon controlled pricing. They prevented resellers from having a lower price anyplace else, and yeah. it included free shipping. So it effectively did drive consumer prices up, right? Because they controlled both sides of that equation. Yeah. So there is an yeah that goes to pricing on the table that goes to pricing. Yeah. Okay. Well, we could talk about that for a very long time and it would be fascinating, but uh, in the interest of time, let's move on. And um, one thing among several that were really interesting to me this week uh, was there were two things that happened. So there was a a John Mueller who's um, uh, Google, I don't know what his title is. He's like a webmaster liaison webmaster person yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. so he was in it he was he does these webmaster office hours and people ask questions he responds to them and one of the questions was about ai generated content or auto generated content as google calls it um is this how how is google treating this and he said mueller said uh this is against our webmaster guidelines which i think is a good position Uh, i think if you read the guidelines it's not as clear and of course, Google is using auto-generated content itself in places like Gmail and now in Google Docs to create summaries of documents. Um, and in Google Business Profiles, <laughs> as we talked about last yes. week, which Greg Finn from the Marketing O'Clock team highlighted yes. the uh, inherent contradiction there of Google violating its own guidelines in Google Business Profiles. Right, so. exactly. So, so I mean, I think there'll be sort of creep that that, you know, Google is concerned about quality more than the source of the content. And they say in their webmaster guidelines that simply posting auto-generated content without human editorial oversight is a violation. But what it implies is if a human touches it in some way or reviews it in some way, it might be fine. There was an an article in the New York Times magazine. I I saw it online, but I assume that it showed up in the magazine. by Stephen Johnson, who is an author and was involved in a local startup years and years ago, 
which whose name I forget. But anyway, so he wrote this lengthy article about open AI and the increasing sophistication of AI content, language understanding, and its ability to generate content. And so now you can get paragraph, paragraph upon paragraph ge- generated with simple prompts uh, that apparently operate at the level of high school writing proficiency, which is pretty impressive. And that'll get better and stronger. And it's semi-instantaneous and it's cheap, at least sort of at scale. So it, it makes me wonder about what the future of search results will be, the future of content on the web, the future of news. You know, there's already news sites that are using AI to generate sort of simple stories like weather reports and things like that. So are we facing some tsunami of machine-generated content? And is Google sort of the last line of defense against a future where machines are, you know, kind of responsible for much of the content that shows up online? That's that's kind of the question in my mind. Some content lends itself better to this than others. For example, a summary of a ball yes. game. There's a certain format to it with strict parameters and numbers involved than others. I, I would assume that that low-hanging fruit maybe has already been being yeah. driven by AI. Yeah, I, certainly in the fantasy sports world, we've had these automated write-ups that have been getting better and better and better uh, over the last decade of, of my participation anyway. Well, it, so, it, raise, it raises um, the... Go the... Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, though, Mike, I think the ball game is kind of a perfect... Um, a perfect example here. I could actually see a uh, the combination of a you know of a artificially curated thirty to sixty second video summarizing the game uh, with clips with an automatic text summary being actually much more valuable than most of the summaries that you get on a typical <laughs> ESPN you know ten dollar an hour beat writer um, actually putting out. So I, I think that that's a it's a reasonable use case. I think when it get when you get into more, you know, why you should get plastic surgery. Areas of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> areas that are a little bit more in the uh, your money or your life uh, situation. I think that those are just going to be harder to fake generally, and that lower quality content is is going to have a whole bunch of bad user signals that Google's not going to like. Well, so. I'll, I'll raise two points. Um, one is the point that you sort of implied a second ago, which is, does it really matter? I mean, this sort of is speaking out of the other side of my mouth. Does it really matter if the content is good, if it does what it's supposed to do? Does it matter if a human generates it or somebody in a developing country that's you know paid very little or um, or a machine? That's I think that's I think that's an interesting philosophical question. But I I'm reminded I was immediately reminded of the whole era of content farms in the sort of mid to late 2000, I don't know what to call the decade, the aughts, right? Yeah. <laughs> the aughts. When, 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 you know, there were a lot of companies, Demand Media and others, that were paying these sort of teams of writers to crank out eHow and all these, all these sites that were just trying to flood the SERP with content to, to rank, and then they were showing display ads, and it was a kind of a you know, it was a kind of, I don't know, it's not exactly arbitrage. In some cases, maybe there was some arbitrage, but it was really all about getting display impressions and just generating article after article after article. And this would seem to be another way to do that sort of thing. And so I'm hopeful that Google's, um, you know, holds the line on this. So we don't, we don't have lots and lots of crap and 
more noise and nonsense than we already do in the SERP. Yeah, one area where I think it would be useful is helping to generate, for example, responses to reviews, where it provides yeah. the business with a a unique response that the business could then modify, but then at least the business might be able to take the time to actually do it. I think there are use cases where it makes total. Well, that's good that's sense. a little that's a little bit different, but I think you're right, and I I do think that people are already using templates, so you know I think this is the next step is just to create a more personalized. Right response and customer service is another area for better or for worse which is going to see a lot of this i mean you've got you've got bots currently that are basically just you know regurgitating faqs and with something like this you'll have much more sensitivity and much more personalized responses and so that could be a good thing or it could be just a rage inducing thing you know depending on how <laughs> when i get up <laughs> The other piece, though, Mike, that you you know you bring up a really good point. I mean, I think we it's sort of um, uh, self evident at this point um, if you've been in the industry long enough, right? That small businesses are terrible about writing about themselves. Um, you can't sit a small business down in front of a keyboard and expect them to come up with four paragraphs of content about a particular service, but you can get them to record a you know twenty second video where they're explaining their service. And maybe you can run that transcript through AI yeah. and actually build out a much yeah. more useful, uh, you know, consumer friendly description of a particular service that a business is offering. So I see it as, I mean, it's a definitely a double-edged sword. You don't want the, the e-how thing to proliferate, but it could give um, time-strapped sort of, you know, non-professional writer SMBs a, a, a leg up in actually promoting, the, doing a better job of promoting. I, I think that's an so. excellent point. More likely than not, what you'll see is agencies and third parties acting in an agency capacity using those tools to do that kind of thing on behalf of the small business customer, I suspect. Mike, you were going to say something. Well, I just think there's there just four good business ideas in this last 15 minutes. Well, here. so that's an that's article. All. Let's turn it into a into a piece. That's a, that's an interesting article. Um, and so, so for our final installment or segment uh, today, we'll be... Yeah, we'll be here. we'll be hiring Chris Wallace, who's now going to be uh, out of a job for our. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Anyway, Scott Galloway as well. Is he a CNN Plus guy? Well, I think they're. Yeah. I think they're going to okay. be. I think they're going to bring some of those folks into the main the main shows. But anyway, enough with that. So, um, David, you you were interested in talking about some of the findings of a recent Breeden study about small business software buyers' content preferences. And what did, what did that say? Yeah, so Breeden's done, and so this is where the segue uh, sort of plays in. Um, so Breeden's done a lot of these, um, these types of surveys of small businesses who are buying from various SaaS companies. And there's been an overwhelming preference, if we, as we've talked about in previous uh, near memos, overwhelming preference for sort of self-research, self-discovery, not the sort of outbound sales model. It's much more um, particular for smaller and medium-sized companies. Um, they don't want to rely on a salesperson. They want to do their own research. So this mo most recent survey from Breeden was asking, okay, well, if you do want to do your own research, you know, what are the content types that are most likely to uh, catch your eye or induce you to buy? I forget exactly how they phrased it. Um, and they did some interesting uh, sort of cohort analysis segmentation uh, of the survey. They looked at how professional services folks reacted to a very various 
set of content types versus manufacturing versus retail. Um, and then they also broke it down by the generation of the respondents. So Gen Z, millennial, boomer, you know, et cetera. And, you know, there were, there were some, there were some sort of outlier responses. Uh, for example, uh, the, the one that struck me, 43% of Gen Z or millennials um, was most likely to use a Facebook post as their preferred content format that they came across something from a, a software vendor. Um, compare that to only 10% of boomers. So, I mean, that's a substantial difference. But by and large, I mean, the, the types of content that they were asking about, Facebook posts, podcasts, uh, checklists or worksheets, tweets, email newsletter, to me, there was not a huge, like there was sort of the same level, a very similar level of interest uh, in in coming across content in many of these different types of formats. And so to me, it speaks more to the difficulty of content marketing these days that even if you know you have a very specific, you know, target buyer of a, you know, an older millennial at a manufacturing company, you kind of still need to have a pretty holistic uh, content strategy because you don't know what's actually going to catch, the, be most likely to catch their attention. So, um, and this is where I think the segue hits. If there's a way for Mach machines, uh, artificial intelligence, machine machines to help me scale out a blog post into all of these different formats, uh, or scale scale up a you know a social post on Facebook into a longer form piece that somebody that a, that a boomer in manufacturing is expecting to see. Um, then that might, you know, that might be a, a huge benefit for marketers, even if the goal is not necessarily to rank better in Google or to spam, spam the world with all this content, but just to help me reach my consumers in the format that they prefer the most. Because I think that that to me was the biggest takeaway is that there isn't one sort of dominant format that everyone is hoping to come across. your. Well, content. I mean, as somebody so. who was a, a content marketer in my previous job it's just really challenging to 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 deal with all the by the funnel stages and the personas and the different channels it's kind of an overwhelming thing you know there's just it, it just it's not humanly possible which brings in the idea of you know some sort of ai aided approach and i suspect that's what we'll see you know we will we will see what you envision ha happen to some degree and and you know for scale um Content is expensive. Content teams aren't getting larger, but the expectations are. So I, I suspect you're right. I was just wondering if maybe it's the problem with the expectations that you should have personas and well, this, multimedia, and maybe the expectation is wrong. Not well, the, the expectations output. are kind of crazy, but this is what they are, right? I mean, this is what this is what. Yeah. I'm just saying. Well, this is what CMOs. This is what CMOs and and market, you know, C-suite folks expect. Is they, you know, there's a kind of a a conventional wisdom here about, um, you know, you've got to have content and it's got to cover all these bases. And if you're and if you combine, so I'll just not to disparage my former employer Uberall because I like them very much and I like all the people there. Um, but we but, but we had we had multiple languages and countries. We had funnel wow. stages. We had, you know, ideal uh, buyer profiles, and 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 we had verticals to some degree, you know. And it just, you know, it was like five people or four, four or five people. So it was just, it was just, 
impossible. There was a kind of an inherent impossibility about trying to generate content to meet all of these uh, categories and needs. And I think that a lot of companies are in that same boat. I mean, if you're in a single market and a single vertical, you know, U.S. and you're doing plumbing or whatever it is, or or you know, HR software or something, it's it's much easier for you. Yeah, but even in the verticals, I mean, that's what I thought. The, maybe the most interesting piece of this was the 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 age based, you know, generational differences. So even in HR software, you probably have millennials who are sort of moving into the leadership roles, and you still have silent generation folks, and they have very different probably preferences not, on probably where not they want silent to talk. generation. Those people are probably not in the workforce well, at this point. <laughs> You never know. Oh, yes, yes, I Inflation guess that's true. Being what it is, security is not worth what they used to be. So, but um, okay, I think we've come to the end of another exciting episode, episode sixty-one. And this is we're recording this on Earth Day, so um, you know, take shorter showers, use less energy, buy fewer things, uh, don't use single-use plastics, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.